This episode of All My Friends Are In Bar Bands was recorded on the land of the Turrbal people. We pay our respects to elders past and present, and we acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Enjoy this week's episode. Hi everyone, this is David James Young from All My Friends Are In Bar Bands. I hope you're doing well. This is a strange one. Uh, This is a weird episode to be putting up now, uh, given what has uh, gone on since this episode was recorded. Uh, So the guest on today's episode is Andy Gill. Andy Gill was the guitarist and founding member of one of the greatest, if not the greatest, post-punk band of all time, Gang of Four. They were here in Australia uh, commemorating the 40th anniversary of their debut album, Entertainment, and they were doing a headlining tour in support of that. I was in Brisbane and I went to see them at the zoo uh, and it was honestly such an incredible performance. I was just so blown away by it. And earlier that day, I had gotten the opportunity to speak to Andy uh, in the foyer of their hotel room uh, to talk about the entire career of Gang of Four, all the changes that had gone through and everything that had kind of gone on with the band over the last few decades, and I had had that scheduled for a while, and then on Sunday, I heard the news that, unfortunately, due to a illness involving his respiratory system, uh, Andy passed away on Sunday at the age of 64. This is the first time that I have ever put up an episode posthumously, uh, and it's quite a lot to take in. It's quite a lot to take in uh, hearing Andy talking about the band in the present tense and talking about the future of the band and everything. You could just tell that he was going to continue on with this band as long as possible. It meant so much to him to carry this legacy and carry this music on into generation after generation. And I am so, so glad I got to be there uh, to see them perform for what ended up being the last time in Australia. Uh, I'm going to treasure that show so, so much more now. Yeah, I want to extend my sincerest condolences to Andy's family and his bandmates and everyone that worked with him and knew him on a personal and professional level. And yeah, there's not much more I can say. Big thank you to John Howarth uh, for helping to make this interview happen in the first place. Thank you to Adam Buncher for editing this episode. 
normally I'd be doing my big plugs and stuff like that, but it just doesn't feel right today. I just want to get into this episode and share Andy's story with you for what may have been one of the last interviews that he ever gave. That's a that's a a, a huge honor and a huge burden on me personally. So it's it's a lot to take in, but I am really thankful I got to spend time with Andy and talk about everything that the band went through. I'm really grateful for the time that I've spent with the music of Gang of Four. These songs will live forever, no matter what. Rest in peace, Andy Gill. Here's today's episode. Thank you so much. Hi everyone, I'm David James Young and all my friends are in bar bands. Today I would like to introduce you to my friend, Andy Gill. Hello. How nice are you? I'm pretty good. Good to hear it. It yeah. is Thursday night, we are in Brisbane and Gang of Four are back in Australia for the first time in what I believe is, it's been about eight years, hasn't it? It's been, uh, it's been a long time. It's funny, I was talking to Thomas about it. He thought it was like three years ago or something. Yeah, so, yeah. Mate, it's, uh, you're getting old, you know. It's like <laughs> when you get old, you start... Thinking everything was last week. You yeah, know, totally. When in fact it was twelve, fifteen years ago. Or whatever, yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> so, but no, it was it was a while ago. I can't remember exactly when, but it was a while back. Yeah, for sure. Do you remember the first time you came to Australia? No. no. <laughs> um, <laughs> Probably a good time then. <laughs> if you can't God, let me think. It might have been for Michael Hutchins's funeral. Yeah, right. It might have been. Or I could be wrong, but that's. Thinking back, that might have been it. Yeah, true. In Sydney. Yeah, sure, sure. Did you guys? You wouldn't have played. Did you play together? Like in, you guys in NXS? Once. Yeah, really. Uh, me and Michael. Oh God, what was it? it? Was I think it was a Black Grape show. Yeah, in right. In London, and me and Michael sort of guested on it, and and there was Johnny Marr on guitar, me on guitar. Wow. And Michael came on and sung a few tracks. A huge crowd. I can't. Oh my god! Know. Yeah, I can't. The, the details are a bit fuzzy, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's an incredible super group, though. That yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, one yeah, for the yeah, record yeah, yeah. books. Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, so I begin these by tracing back the initial interest in music, specifically where it changed from being something that maybe you were like listening to on the radio or just consuming like through like your family's like record collection or anything like that to yeah. switching over to being like this is what I want to do I want to play guitar I want to be in a band that sort of thing can yeah. you tell me a bit about how music kind of factored into your childhood and your upbringing and if there was kind of a switch on moment for you it certainly didn't come from my parents that's for sure yeah right although my mother was a, a pretty damn good uh, violinist and played uh, in a youth, youth orchestra in Manchester but and my granddad played the banjo he was uh, yeah true yeah, so he lived in the. My father's parents lived in a tiny, tiny little slum house in in Salford in Manchester, 
and uh, I'd go and visiting there you'd open the front door and you'd be right there in the living room and he'd be sitting playing the banjo, spitting in the fire. Those are my musical relatives. Yeah, yeah. And, um, <laughs> no, I loved it as a, as a kid. I was just trying to... I used to kind of work out how, you know, bands, like you sort of see the Beatles on the TV and like, how are they making, you know, how does that... Mm. I was trying to work out how, how it worked and yeah. how those changes happened and how it affected you. You know, that whole idea that I very much got into the Stones and very much Jimi Hendrix when I was like you know 13 years old or whatever yeah, yeah. and I think a, a bit of a moment for me was one of my two cousins could actually play the guitar and showed me a couple of things I thought wow it, it's not as impossible as I thought it was yeah. you know <laughs> I mean that's the thing really it's if someone shows you a couple of things you kind of it's it, you you get over that thing, yeah. And I, I it, you know, in, in in the last few years, I showed my nephew, mm. who's now eighteen, but at the time he must have been thirteen, fourteen. Yeah, yeah. I showed him a couple of things. The classic one is the Stones' Satisfaction. Oh, sure. Because yeah, it's the yeah. simplest riff there is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's also the coolest riff there For is. Sure, yeah. You know, dan dan <laughs> da da da. Yeah, yeah. How can you go wrong? Exactly. And it's so easy. You yeah. Know? And if you show somebody, his mother, my sister-in-law. Mm. Cursed me because she said all I, all she heard for weeks was just somewhere in the house that'd be, <laughs> dan dan, <laughs> you know. So you kind of you pass it on, you know. It's like that's lesson one. You know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so for me, so it was sort of Hendrix, and then the Velvet Underground. And, sure, um, yeah. But then re- reggae, massively reggae. Really? Uh, yeah. Which, yeah, it was uh, very much underground music mm. in the UK in the late 60s early 70s yeah yeah there was that well, it was more scar then it was like yeah. you know dub dub reggae didn't exist then yeah, I yeah. mean it was uh, it was like that sort of uh, Desmond Decker and sure, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. all that stuff that was a major thing that me and some of my friends you know got into because nobody else knew knew about it you know yeah 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 so you grew up in Manchester I was born there and spent about five years there. Yeah. Uh, and then my father's job, some sort of engineering thing, moved south mm. to the London area, and we ended up in a suburb of of London, and then we moved again. And I basically grew up in Kent, south. Right, yeah. So how would you describe that area for someone who hasn't been around that part of England? Well, the the exact area... It is fairly well off. Yeah. I mean, it's got a sort of, you know, like most places, it's got the sort of the posher part and the and the more middle of the road working class part. I don't know. They they were kind of building a lot of new housing around there, and uh, yeah. So I went there and went to a local school there. Was it in high school that you played live for the first time? Or? Yeah, 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 yeah. Played in a few bands, you know, like people do, you know, in yeah. high school, local village halls and stuff like that. And did a couple of things with John King. Uh, he was at the same school as me. Yeah, right. So we, we, we knew each other from very early on. Yeah. We did a few gigs as the Bourgeois Brothers, and we both ended up doing fine art at Leeds University, and that's right. where Gang of All kicked off. Yeah. yeah, true. So, were you both like kind of kicking around in bands in high school, like before Gang of Four, like properly started? Like, were you in the same sort of bands in high school? 
Well, we just did this. I mean, it was, it, to be honest, it was quite jokey. I mean, it wasn't, yeah. we weren't really serious. Uh, like but, it, but it was kind of, like... no, it was, I don't know, riff orientated. Yeah. I think my brother might have played drums in it. I'm, can't, I'm not sure. Yeah, right. So, yeah, you sort of mess around a bit. And, I, and you know, when we were at Leeds, when we were so-called writing songs, we weren't, yeah. we weren't really being serious about it. You know, I mean, it's like we were art students, you know, art students by its very nature have time on their hands. Yeah. You know, there's only you know, there's, uh, they're supposed to be in the studio painting masterpieces, yeah. and um, but you know, you, you end up like sitting around composing songs, drinking gin, playing chess, whatever it is. You yeah, know. yeah. Do you remember when and where the first Gang of Four show was? Yeah, it was uh, Leeds University Corn Exchange basement. Uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, wow. Yeah, you know, there's probably. Probably fifty people there or something. Mm. That, that was yeah, that was the first thing. And, the, and the, I've, there's there's a recording kicking around of that first show. Yeah, really. And it's, it's interesting when you listen to it because it's it's still got that feel of a couple of mates mucking around, yeah. you know, having a little bit of a laugh. Some of the some of the songs are quite jokey. You know, I, I think th- there's a point where. You know, I was saying to John, you know, you know, I'd be coming up with new songs with, with John and we'd be working together on the lyrics and it started, somehow it started to morph into something a little bit more serious. Yeah, sure. We'd be like, OK, let's stop pissing around here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It developed quite quickly over a mm. period of about 18 months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's when we, you got closer to what ended up on entertainment. Yeah. But if you listen to what we played, you know, in May 77... The first gig, a lot of it is just like punky, slightly humorous, maybe, yeah. you know. Yeah, 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 sure. So, what was the like the music scene and the music community around you guys at, at that point? Like, was it a very kind of like DIY punk kind of thing, or you know, where? Well, there were wasn't there, there wasn't much happening around us. The only yeah. the, the, the only thing was that when we pretty much at the same time we started. The Mekons started. Right. And they were friends of ours. So we'd rehearse somewhere in some room somewhere. And then when we'd, like, take a break or had to go do something else or go to the pub or whatever, the Mekons would literally step in and pick up our instruments and then they'd rehearse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and we developed this thing where we would act quite communally. So we'd, we'd try and buy equipment with everybody chipping in and... Trying to, you know, uh, looking after each other a little bit. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Which doesn't always happen. No, you know, this with, is with true. Bands. This is true. <laughs> around like circuit entertainment, like was it just a matter of like just playing around the local area, or were you trying to get around like Europe and the UK as much as well, possible? Well, before like, yeah. what happened was uh, briefly. Uh, so we started playing. You know, May '77 was the first gig in Leeds. Yeah. And then we, the second gig was, I remember, was in the university. There was a, a bar, I can't remember. I think it was called the Cellar Bar or something. Right. And we did a gig down there. And then we kind of tried to reach out a bit. And then there's various pubs in the Yorkshire area. We go, you know, we go in, a, in Hugo's transit van, um, go and play somewhere or other. And I think the thing was, we found out that the Buzzcocks were playing nearby. Yeah, right. And... Somehow, 
No, we just turned up. That's right. Really? We just we just turned up at the sound check and, yeah. and said to Richard Boone, who was the Buzzcocks manager, who I still know to this day. Yeah. But this is the first time I met him, and I said, "What do you think about us like playing support for yes. Buzzcocks?" He went, "Yeah, I don't see why not." That's and, it. And I, and I think we brought our own PA, which we which oh, we'd made ourselves shit. basically. Yeah, wow. Uh, in the back of the transit, and I can't remember. We brought it, uh, said that we wouldn't be any hassle to their sound people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he just said, "No, you can use ours." So we played. We, we we played him, and then he 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 phoned us couple of days later and said we've got some more gigs do you want to come and so yeah. we started playing some gigs with the Buzzcocks and then people started to hear about us and then Susan yeah. the band she's called us do you want to support us in so and so so it went like that you know suddenly we were suddenly we were a bit you know we were going all over the country that's uh, huge and yeah. Um, yeah and it kind of went from there yeah was it that mentality like you're playing to like primarily an audience that has no idea who you are. You just kind mm. of like, is it just a matter of just like not compromising that for anything and just like kind of just getting up there and giving the same sort of show you normally would? Yeah, the, yeah, there's, there's, uh, we only knew one way to do it. Yeah, you know, and yeah. That was the way we did it. And we couldn't have imagined any other way of doing it, I don't think. You know, yeah, so. for sure, for sure. Out of the 70s and into the 80s and stuff like that, like, do you find yourself like, kind of burnt out from, from touring much? Like, is it, is it the kind of thing where you guys are, like... It, does it kind of build up to the point of, like, doing, like, 100-plus shows a year or anything like that? Does it ever get, like, that kind of gruelling and intense for the band? Well, we never did that much, you know. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't call John lazy, but, you know, if it's a four-week tour of America... Yeah. He'd be like, OK, that's me done for a while. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, it, and the funny thing was, you know... REM used to support us a lot yeah. in, in America and and they talk, you know, we'd be talking to them and they'd be doing 200 gigs a year yeah. you know and we'd be doing like I don't know 50 60 yeah. maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. you know and mm. it's a sort of old cliche in the music business you know it's like you know you kind of, the, the work you put in there is, 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 is what pays you back you know mm. and, for sure. Yeah, and you know, and getting it for you know, as far, as far as John King was, goes, it was always a bit of a stop-start affair. You know, he'd be right, in it for yeah. a while, and be, yeah. then he'd be going up. Yeah, well, you know, I'm going to do something else now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'd be tour managing Aswad or something bizarre, right? Yeah, which he did. You know, and then he and then he called me up and go. Yeah, let's do some Gang of Four again. You know, so it's always like it was always kind of a bit stop-start. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, yeah, like, through the band's history, you've kind of been the, the sole constant, like, even after John left, as you said, and kind of you've kind of kept the band going and stuff like that. Like, what has been kind of, like, the, the motivating force for you to kind of keep the music of Gang of Four alive? Like, does it still kind of hold that same sort of resonance to you now as it did, like, when you were starting out and, you know, when the band was kind of hitting that stride around that point of you know doing all those massive gigs and well the 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 thing of thinking out songs you know like plotting it out figuring it out and and what it is you're trying to say sometimes i do that all on my own sometimes i do that with other people yeah yeah when i think about it i think essentially to me it feels like a the same process that it did you know back in the day back in the 70s um you know it, it would be 
slightly different because, you know, I think the advent of computers, computer recording and, you know, pre-computer recording, it's quite interesting the, the difference between them. So, you know, uh, if, if, if I've got a drum, you know, I think very rhythmically, so if I've got a drum beat and I'm messing around and doing things on the on the computer, which I do now, you know, back back then it would be me, me trying to persuade Hugo to try this beat or that beat, and he'd say, "What the fuck do you know?" Uh, and I go, "Well, look, I've got this idea, so let's just pursue it, shall we?" And you know, there's a lot of arguing, a lot of yeah, arguing. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, that, that that's kind of the difference. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But I can imagine, yeah, like with the current lineup, there, there would be like a very innate sense of trust there to be able to, you know, play the older stuff. You know, like you're, you're taking out, taking them all out to play this album that you know was obviously such a huge formative part of your career, and you know, mm-hmm. you're entrusting these guys that you know didn't play on that record to kind of recreate it live. That's a that's a huge deal. Yeah, yeah. Well. Damn, they do it well. You yeah, know, yeah. Um, you know, Tobias, he's, he's plays now. I mean, we've got Johnny Finnegan has played with this um, over the last few years. Yeah. Tobias has played with this quite a lot over the last few years. We're talking about really brilliant drummers, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not because they're, fa- you know, I mean, the, Hugo was, you know, not like the world's greatest drummer. He wasn't, he, he wasn't taught, but he was, he did keep to the beat. I mean, he kept it straight. And he gets it metronomic. And these guys, Tobias and Johnny, they do all that, but they can do all the other stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. Thomas is as good a bass player as I've played with, in, in yeah. all honesty, and we've played with a lot, you know. So, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and Jayla is, uh, I think, a phenomenal singer and frontman. Yeah, you know? for sure, for sure. With all the people that I talk to on this podcast, like uh, we o- we often kind of look at the I- that very idealistic view of like how you perceive bands growing up. Like you said, like watching the Beatles and stuff like that, and you know that classic like rock biopic moment where like a band reaches a certain point or gets to do something, and it's seen as like the group has made it. You know, and as idealistic as that is, I feel like every musician kind of has that in the back of their head, like. For you, like, whether it was getting to play with a certain band, playing in a certain city, getting to travel to a certain place or anything like that, was there any point, like, along the trajectory of Gang of Four where you kind of got that in the back of your head where it's just like, oh, you know, we've made it? Or was it kind of just, like, always just on to the next thing for you guys? I thought the whole thing was, you know, you start out and you, uh, you're you not quite sure where it's going to go. Mm. But I did have a lot of self-belief. Uh, and a, a lot of belief in in what was being made. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I famously said to the to the band and our friend, the manager Rob War. Yeah. Uh, you know, I said, you realise that what we're making here isn't just music. It's it's the future. It's yeah. it, this is like the avant-garde. This is a new language, and they just fell about laughing. Yeah. Just like you pretentious. <laughs> And I think I went further than that. And I said, they'll probably be teaching this in universities in 20 years' time. And here we are. <laughs> you know, and, um, whether, I, whether or not I'm vindicated, that's the way I felt. Yeah. And I, and I felt... Uh, once, once, you know, you kind of... You, can, you, you do gigs with the buzzcocks, you do gigs with the Manchus, and, yeah. and, and you can do all that. And then you've got all these record companies coming chasing after you. You know that this is a, this is a viable thing. Yeah. Now, some people might think... 
yeah, this is, could be fun for a year, and then I'll go be an accountant. Yeah. But that wasn't the way I saw it. And the yeah. way I saw it is I, I can do this, and this is what I want to do, and I like doing it, and I yeah. think I'm good at it. Yeah. And I might do it in five years' time, I might do it in ten years' time. Yeah, totally. Um, and I ended up doing it in a lot more than that. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> so do you feel like the motivation to, like... Uh, continue to tour and, and write and record and perform and just, you know, be involved and connected to music, do you feel like that's kind of still the same motivating force that it was when you were first picking up a guitar and first playing your yeah, bands? Yeah, in like a strange that? way. I mean, I know it yeah. sounds strange, but it, yeah, in a funny way, yeah it, yeah, it sort of does, yeah. Totally, for sure. Yeah. Alright, so we'll wrap it up here. Before we do that, I ask this of all of my guests. Now it is your turn. I want to know about the best and the worst shows that you've ever played. That we've ever played? Uh, that you've ever played. It could be right. Gang of Four, right. it could be anything. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But whatever the, comes to mind for the best and worst shows that you've okay, played. Okay, well, there's quite a few contenders for the worst show. <laughs> I mean, one of the very early shows we played in, in York, which is, you know, near, kind of near Leeds. Yeah. Uh, early show. All the record companies were at that point coming to see us. EMI, Chris Briggs from EMI came. Right. And uh, oh, I've just forgotten his name from. Uh, well, most of these record companies have disappeared now. But oh, sure. There's yeah. a whole bunch of. Uh, they, we, they were coming to all our shows. And in York, for some reason, John and I thought it was a good idea to eat a, a big lump of dope. <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> I think I think the word is sheer stupid. Well, it's two words: sheer stupidity. <laughs> there it is. Um, and for some reason, we thought it was a good idea to hide underneath the stage. Yeah. So I remember he and I being underneath the stage, <laughs> and um, I think we play, and eventually we we come out from underneath the stage and play the show that yeah. was, shall we say. Not really on point. Uh, <laughs> that may have been the worst. And and um, and I just clearly remember talking to Rob War, who was managing us at the time, yeah, yeah. and Chris Briggs. And and Rob was just like shaking his head. And, uh, <laughs> and Chris Briggs is hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. See you later. And I, and I remember watching them walk off. I think we might have fucked that up. Maybe. <laughs> um, but we ended. We, actually, we ended up signing with Chris Briggs. You did it. A, a few months later, I think we did. A, I think we did a couple of good shows after that to make up yeah, for it. Redemptive arc. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, what about the best show? What comes to mind for you? I think a really great show. There's a venue in San Francisco called the Geary Temple or something, mm-hmm. and the Buzzcocks played there. Yeah. Uh, and we supported them. Yeah. But it was like, we might as well have been co-headlining. I mean, the people were just so into what we were doing. Yeah. It was, you know, I, I love the Buzzcocks and, and, and I love Pete Shelley, rest in peace. Mm. But we kind of blew them off, you know. We kind of, it was like, and the temperature, it was a heat wave. So we were pouring sweat yeah. and we just gave it, you know, 100%. And uh, and the audience was... Uh, I think it's, we still have an enormous following in San Francisco. Yeah. I think it stems from that. That's amazing. Nice yeah. one, nice one. Uh, so, Gang of Four, have a new record out? 
came out yeah. earlier this ha- year. Happy Now came out uh, earlier this year. We had a bit of a disaster because the whole thing was, uh, you know, pledge music. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which has completely crashed and disappeared, owing a lot of money to a lot of people, including me. Yeah. And also, but the main thing was it completely fucked up the release of the record. Yeah. So instead of coming out when it should have done, it came out about six weeks later. Yeah. Uh, with a new we had to scrabble to find a, a new label which ended up being the Republic of Music but uh, it, you know it's a really strong record yeah. but we've got a couple of things in the pipeline uh, one's a bit of a secret um, and the other is uh, but it's an amazing secret but it'll be uh, all will be revealed in the next month or so excellent, excellent. Uh, and there's, a, there's another Gang of Four record which is two thirds done Nice. So a lot of stuff coming out uh, in the next 12 months. Fantastic. Well, Andy, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Good to talk to you. Likewise, a pleasure. I'm David James Young, and all my friends are in bar bands.